Take your Bible, if you will, and uh, open it back up to um, Galatians chapter 5. On January the 17th, 1934, in South Africa, there was a poor diamond prospector named Jacobus Junker. Junker was discouraged. He had a string of bad luck and decided to stay home from his normal uh, digging in the earth for valuable uh, minerals. And um, it was a cold and windy day. Night before, there had been a torrential rain that had washed away loads of silt from his uh, fruitless claim of land. And Jonker was in no mood to sort through the floating debris that he would have to do in order to dig on his land. Later that day, he was sitting in his house and he heard this loud noise coming down the road. And he looks out and sees his son, Gert, speeding home like a madman. He hurriedly parks his vehicle. He leaped from the seat of his car and he runs into the house with a big smile on his face. As his father, Jacobus, starts to scold him, Gert places an egg-sized stone in his father's hand. Despite its rough state, the 726-carat diamond glistens in the daylight. Jacobus Junker stares at this 726-carat diamond. With tears filling his eyes, he drops to his knees and begins to thank God for the miraculous find that his son had brought home, knowing that his family would be very wealthy the diamond would eventually yield well over $5 million. They were set for life, or were they? You see, the story of the famous Junker Diamond sadly doesn't end in fame and fortune. Within a few years, Jacobus Junker was penniless again, having mismanaged the money that he had made off of the diamond, he found himself once again digging through the earth, hoping to find another treasure that would restore his fortune. A fortune lost, a treasure squandered, a priceless gem wasted. Friend, our world is full of fascinating stories of men and women who strike it rich only to lose family and friends and fame and fortune within months and years. You see, most people simply can't handle the prosperity and the responsibility that comes with owning a priceless possession. The Galatians were no different. When Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to these folks in the area of Galatia, 
They had received the priceless gift of salvation by grace through faith with no strings attached. However, within weeks, the legalistic Judaizers had sought to rob the Galatians of this priceless possession by replacing the gospel of grace with a religion of works. They were being led to give up their newfound freedom in Christ for bondage to the law once again. Our passage today here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, begins the third section of Paul's letter. Now, after defending his apostleship in chapters 1 and 2, and his message of justification by faith in chapters 3 and 4, Paul now applies that doctrine of justification by faith to practical Christian living in chapters 5 and 6. He emphasizes that right doctrine should result in right living. So he begins with an assertion. Look up there in verse 1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. In the Greek, it literally reads, To freedom Christ has freed us. To freedom Christ has has freed us. Now this freedom that Paul is referring to here is the freedom that offers us a new lifestyle. In other words, as a believer, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, so we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to obey God and to do His will joyfully. Paul follows his assertion, his declaration with a command. Look what he says. Stand firm, therefore. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. And then he says, stand firm, therefore. And basically, don't let anyone come and rob you of this freedom. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, the yoke of legalism restricts us. It forces us to a list of do's and don'ts in order to be accepted by God. But fortunately, Paul's exhortation here sounds an alarm to, these believe, to those believers in Galatia and to us today. Paul is simply saying, don't surrender your freedom. Defend it with your life. <clears throat> so look again at the takeaway. Here's what... Um, uh, we can take from this text this morning. Because Christ has set us free from the bondage of the law, we must stand firm in that freedom that Christ has given to us. Well, Paul was worried the Galatians were going to give up their freedom and fall back into slavery to the law. Before that happened, he wanted them to know that anyone who goes back under the yoke of the law faces tragic consequences. And Paul warned of four such consequences here in these verses. First of all, <clears throat> if you look in verse 2, Paul says, you face the consequence of losing the benefit of Christ's sacrifice. Look what he says. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
In other words, by receiving circumcision, the Galatians would have been saying Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient either to be saved or to be sanctified. They would have been trying to add to Christ's payment for sins on the cross for sin they by by adding their own works to it. In other words, what they were basically saying is Jesus wasn't enough. We have to add Moses to it. By turning to the law, they were turning from Christ. And you and I need to understand that trying to get right with God by getting circumcised or by anything else, anything else, we lose the benefit of Christ's sacrifice because we have sought spiritual benefit elsewhere. We are saying, in essence, we can keep the law for ourselves. But in that case, what do we need a Savior for? If we can keep the law ourselves, why do we need a Savior? He becomes completely unnecessary. You see, you can't have it both ways. Justification is either by law or by grace. It's either by faith or it's by works. If we try to help ourselves, Christ will be of no help to us at all. To illustrate, consider a man who had an old baseball that had been autographed by Babe Ruth. Now that ball was quite valuable. And one day this man decided he wanted to sell this baseball that he had that was valuable because of Babe Ruth's signature. But the man was worried because Ruth's signature had faded and you couldn't see it well without looking real closely. So he decided to make Ruth's signature clearer that he would carefully trace over the letters with a marking pen. B A B E. R-U-T-H. He was proud of himself. He had made it to where you could now see it. But that by the time he finished, he had basically destroyed the original autograph of Babe Ruth. Friend, he had taken a val- valuable item and basically made it worthless. It's the same way with Jesus. His finished work cannot be refinished. You cannot improve on what Jesus did on the cross. It can only be destroyed by our efforts. What Jesus did on the cross and through the empty tomb must be received by faith alone. If we try to add our works to any degree to Jesus' sacrifice, then his sacrifice is no longer of any benefit to us. Paul says, don't go back to the legalism of the law. If you do, you will benefit nothing 
from Christ's sacrifice. Second tragic consequence is found in verse 3. He says, we are obligated. Okay, if you're going to go back and you want to obey the law, if you want to now practice the law again, then Paul says, you need to know something. It's not just the part of the law that you like, or it's not just this little bit of the law that seems easy to you. Paul says, if you go back to the law in any way, you've got to obey the whole law. Look what he says. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Another way to say that is that if we try to justify ourselves, not only are we unable to profit from Christ, but God's law holds us in its debt. So getting circumcised was a way of belonging to the old covenant. That's the way the Jews identified with the old covenant. But the old covenant required perfect obedience. So if the Galatians wanted to get circumcised, they would have to keep the entire covenant from beginning to end. The problem is no one except, of course, Jesus can keep God's whole law. So, the law holds sinners in its infinite debt. On one occasion, the old Jewish rabbi Gamaliel II had been reading from the book of Ezekiel where the life, Ezekiel describes the life of a man who, according to chapter 18, verse 5, is righteous and does what is just and right. When the aged rabbi finished reading, he began to weep, saying, only he who keeps all these requirements will live, not he who keeps only one of them. You see, Gamaliel was weeping because he knew he could never meet the perfect standard of God's law. Friend, you and I will, as hard as we may try, as, as, as much uh, as we might uh, make the best effort we can to keep the law of God, you will never be able to keep the law perfectly. The law requires perfect performance. Once we start trying to obey the law for salvation, we immediately are faced with our inability to do so. The law highlights the sickness of our sin, but it offers uh, no cure for it. We discover its main purpose. The main purpose of the law is to show us our need for God's mercy and his grace. That was the whole purpose of the law from the beginning. That was God's whole intent for giving the law. It was to show man that, look, you, this is the way I want you to live. But you are finite. You are imperfect. You are sinful. And you, with your best efforts, on your best day, you will never be able to obey my law completely. But I want you to see, this law is to remind you of how sinful you are and how much in need every man and every woman is of God's grace and God's mercy. 
So only as we are clothed with Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, can we be acceptable. Friend, it is by grace alone that we can have a vital union, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ that renders us perfect and holy in the sight of God. But if you go back to the law, Paul wants you to understand that you're obligated to keep the whole law, and that's an impossibility. There's a third tragic consequence of legalism here in this text. Look in verse 4. We're cut off from grace. Then Paul says, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, by receiving circumcision, the Galatians severed themselves from the grace of Christ. They had fallen away from grace. Paul's primary point is, And here and throughout this letter is that law and grace cannot be mixed. For a believer to start living again under the law to gain salvation is to reject salvation by grace. Now, does that mean that the Galatians lost the eternal life that they had received when they believed? No. The principle of falling from grace means falling out of the sphere of God's grace. In other words, if you decide to live in the sphere of law after you've been saved by grace, what Paul is saying is you're not losing your salvation, but what is happening is you're trying to live in the sphere of of, uh, grace, but, but you're practicing the law. You cannot mix grace and law. He's referring to the person who genuinely trusts in Christ for salvation, but then exchanges life by grace for life back under the law. Life by faith for life again by works. Life in freedom for life back in bondage. Life in the spirit for life back in the flesh. Instead of Christ as Savior and Lord, listen, instead of Christ as Savior and Lord, we now make the law Savior and Lord. In the former, a person is prompted by the flesh to try to earn righteousness. In the latter, a person is prompted by the Spirit to demonstrate righteousness. I love what Chuck Swindoll says here. He says, when we take up the torch of the flesh, we scorch the work of the Spirit. So when you choose the legalistic lifestyle, you fall from the lifestyle of grace and all of its benefits. You see, you're seeking to be justified before God by your works, your own abilities done in the power of the flesh rather than by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ. An assurance of salvation is not possible if we think we must earn or maintain our salvation by our own efforts. Friend, there is nothing that will make you more miserable than trying to be obedient to the law and come up short time after time after time. And Satan will rub your lack of being able to do that. He will rub that all over your face. 
and he will make you feel about that big and make you think that you are nothing in God's eyes because you are a miserable failure. But God, on the other hand, says what you cannot do for yourself, what you could never have accomplished on your own, I have done for you through my son and his work on the cross. Now, I personally don't know why anyone would want to, once you've recognized that truth, once you've accepted that truth into your life, why you would want to go back and think that you've got to be obedient to every point of the law in order to be accepted by God. Truth is, we didn't earn our salvation by our behavior, and you can't unearn it by your behavior. We are saved by grace, and we are sanctified by grace. A fourth tragic consequence of trusting in legalism, we are excluded from righteousness. Now look what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. He said, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. When Paul says this, he is envisioning the effect of circumcision on one standing before God on the last day. Paul is saying, now just imagine it's the, it's the last day, the day of judgment. And Paul says, you have take, prided yourselves in the fact that um, you have undergone circumcision or you have done all these works according to the law. And Paul says, on that day when you stand before God, <clears throat> circumcision nor uncircumcision is going to mean anything for you. Neither assures one of a righteous standing before God. So what will matter? If circumcision, which is the sign of the old covenant, and if our efforts to keep the law are not uh, worth anything, if that's not what's going to count, then Paul would say, what does count? What does really matter? Look what he says, faith. Faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross through which we are declared righteous before a holy God. Now notice how Paul characterizes this faith. He says it is faith working through love in verse 6. It not only trusts in Jesus for salvation, but expresses itself in love for God and for others. As Martin Luther said, he who wants to be a true Christian or to belong to the kingdom of Christ must be truly a believer. But he does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith. You know what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter on love? He listed all of these things that were wonderful to have, but he said the grace of these is love. You know why he said that? Because if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we have truly uh, believed that when Jesus died on the cross, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves because he fulfilled the law perfectly. He died as the sinless son of God, the lamb of God. 
God accepted his sacrifice. And so when we accept him as Savior, Lord, he becomes our Savior, our Lord. He took our unrighteousness, our imperfection, and he gave us his righteousness and his perfection. And God has accepted us based on what Jesus did for us. And what Paul is saying here is that faith in the finished work of Christ works itself out through love. Why? Because when you understand how needy you are and how sinful you are and how far removed from God you are, apart from Jesus Christ, Paul is wanting us to understand when you get that, you really get that, you will be so in love with God that you won't want to ever break God's commandments or his law. You will want to live for God and for others. And you know what happens when you live for God, when you love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, when you love others as, um, <clears throat> as when you love your neighbor as you do yourself, guess what? When love truly is evident in your life, our life, when that is the characteristic of our life, the reality of that is, I'm not going to do the things that I shouldn't do. Why? Because my love for God is too great. My love for others is too great. I wouldn't want to do anything to hurt God. I wouldn't want to do anything to uh, 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 cause him to uh, be uh, upset or in any way with me. And I wouldn't want to do anything to those that God has placed in my life that would hurt them as well. I want to show that I'm truly humbled and I am truly appreciative of what God has done for me. Therefore, I am going to love God with all my heart, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Paul says, if you want to know whether your faith is real, he says it ought to be faith that works itself through love. love faith and love go together. Love is the outworking of genuine faith. So we must apply the faith working through love test to everything we do. That'll help us to stand firm in freedom and avoid submitting to a yoke of spiritual slavery and legalism. The British historian Paul Johnson writes about Winston Churchill that Churchill did more for humanity than any other figure of the 20th century. He wrote, no man did more to preserve freedom and democracy and the value, values we hold dear in the West. But what, according to Johnson, was the key to Churchill's remarkable success as a statesman and a leader and a champion of freedom? Knowing what counts. Knowing what counts. He says Churchill had an uncanny gift for getting his priorities right. Can I just say this to those who lean towards legalism? You need to get your priorities right. Because what's happened is you've allowed the law to be elevated above love for others and for God. Paul says, if you want to know if your faith is real, it'll work itself out in love. And when love... Working 
by faith working through love is the principal value of my life, then the law will take care of itself. I will live in such a way that even though I may not know the law, I will live out the law. And you know what ultimately counts? What ultimately counts in your life? Not only in this life, but in the life to come. Do you know what ultimately counts? What are you giving all of your time and your attention to? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it to some hobby? What are you giving? What are you prioritizing in your life? When our life is rooted in Jesus Christ, we realize that faith working through love is what ultimately counts. This is what ultimately matters to God and what ultimately makes a difference on the day of judgment. Here's the question. Does this ultimately count to you? It will then, but does it? Now, your faith working through love. Paul says, don't go back to being enslaved by legalism. If you do that, you will cut yourself off from Christ. His sacrifice will be of no more benefit to you. If you try to obey the law, you're obligated to obey the whole law. And you will cut yourself off from the grace of God. And lastly, you'll be excluded from righteousness. On the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you will have nothing to show for yourself. Except for your own feeble efforts to be obedient to God. And you will have to admit, I came up short. Whereas, if you continue to walk in grace and trust Jesus, you can stand before God and say, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I am unrighteous, but because of Jesus, and his death for me on the cross. I come before you, Father, and I stand righteous in your sight because of what Jesus did for me. That's the difference between law and grace. In one, you are in bondage to sin and the requirements of the law. In the other, you have been saved, you have been forgiven, and you are free in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Our freedom in Christ, friend, is a priceless possession. Don't throw it away. How many of you 
have been to New York City and seen the Statue of Liberty. It's quite a sight. The lady standing on the pedestal out there in the harbor has a name, Libertas. It means freedom or liberty. She was a gift to the United States from the people of France. In 1855, the completed statue was dismantled in France, and it was placed in 214 crates to be shipped to America. Halfway across the Atlantic, the French ship carrying the statue encountered a terrible storm, and it was in danger of sinking. To lighten the ship, the captain ordered that any excess weight was to be thrown overboard. The ship was still in danger of being swamped by the waves. The sailors wanted to throw the crates containing Libertas overboard as well. But the captain said to those men, No, we will sink before we throw Liberty away. And I would say that that's a good cry for the church. We would sink before we would allow anybody to take away the freedom we have in Christ and enslave us again to legalism. Lady Liberty was saved and she stands as a symbol of freedom today. Can I just say to you this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ still stands today, and it is a symbol of freedom for the believer. Don't let anyone ever try to rob you of the freedom that God has given to you us. Remember, Paul says there in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Say that with me. For freedom Christ has set us free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me if you will.